Well, Anna has appointed me as the chief uh, church exterminator because she was walking back there in the lobby and there was this bright green worm on the blue carpeting. And so she says, do you pick up worms to me? (laughs) So we went back there and I put the worm out in the greenery out there. Now, I've learned something about these uh, large larvae, and that is they're kind of ugly in the worm state, but they go through a transformation, and when they come out the other end, they come out as beautiful butterflies, I understand. In fact, uh, at the Natural History Museum in San Francisco, they had a, a picture on that, and it was amazing, some of the pictures they had of the transformation of that larvae into a beautiful butterfly. And I guess there's, that's a good illustration of how God can take us poor sinners, and it's by his grace that he can transform us into lovely characters after the likeness of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And I don't think that those worms have to work at the transformation because uh, the power of God is working there in recreating them And neither do you have to work at transforming yourself into the character of Jesus because it's like birth. Did any of you give birth to yourself? Nobody here? Then how did you get here? You just let it happen, right? (laughs) You just let it happen. And the same thing is true of the new birth. You cannot give rebirth to your life. And only God can do that. So let it happen, because the Holy Spirit wants to give you new birth. We want to look at that this evening. It's another one of the lovely responsibilities and operations of the Holy Spirit. The the reason why salvation is the result of believing good news rather than doing good works is that there is no power in a program of good works to change the human heart. See, it has to... uh, Good works only come from a pure heart. So after you get through doing every good thing that you can think of, you find that your original selfishness still is there. And it may be disguised so that you hardly recognize it, but history is replete with all kinds of examples of religious people who are just wearing themselves out with good works, who do it for self-centered reasons, and they don't have genuine love. And if you look in 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 3, it sets this principle forth. 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 3, and you'll notice how all of these good works are happening, but there's a problem. It says, if I give all I possess to the poor, is that a good work? And surrender my body to the flames, I suppose that would be martyrdom, you know. But have not what? Agape. By the way, that word charity comes from the Latin charitas, and it's a combination of eros and agape. And so... it's gotten into our Bible via Roman Catholicism. And so the word charity, I much prefer the word love or agape over charity because 
charity has this connotation of, of uh, faith and works to it. But you'll see here that if there's no agape, I, I gain nothing, as it says there in the New International Version. So all these good works appear to be just fine, but they're all self-centered as far as their motivation is concerned. And that's what Paul is talking about here. They must proceed from a heart that is filled with agape. So phony good news tells us that such selfishness is okay. The false gospel tells us, be, do good, whether you like it or not. <laughs> and that's nothing but phoniness. That's a false gospel. It tells us that a genuine change of heart is impossible, so there's no use even hoping for it. So you might as well just adjust your thinking to be satisfied with being selfish and sinful. And there is a gospel out there that says uh, you can't hope to change your, your nature because you were born with it. And so just live with it and expect to do some bad things and just try to be good. Other people are that way. Why not you? Such counterfeit good news declares that God himself will be content for us to go on like we are so long as we say we accept Jesus in our heads. If we do that, then God will just whitewash everything for us, you know. But the true good news is something that is much better than that. In fact, the clearest chapter in the Bible is the one where Jesus describes not only the possibility but also the necessity of being born again. And he did this with Nicodemus, who was a member of the council, the Jewish ruling council. And uh, Nicodemus had a sense that he needed some help. And so he sought Jesus out by night, and he rather awkwardly began the conversation by giving some vain praise to the Lord. But you'll find there in John chapter 3, and beginning in verse 2, be well for us to look at that together. John chapter 3, and beginning in verse 2. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, so birth of a mother. That which is born of the Holy Spirit is spirit. Certain principles of truth uh, that Christ expressed that night to Nicodemus, I guess we could describe them as time bombs that were sown into Nicodemus's mind that would release their grand energies as time went on. Maybe a better way of saying this might be that these truths which, which Jesus planted in Nicodemus's mind were like flower seeds in a desert, seeds that appear to be dead until the spring rains and the sunshine awaken them to exuberant life. The point is that these truths have power inherent within them. The Savior did not tell Nicodemus that he must produce his own new birth, did he? He went on to explain the good news that this 
wonderful miracle is something that the Lord does and not man. It's, it's very discouraging for a person to be told over and over again that you must be born again, and then he thinks that the job is up to him to perform somehow. Just like we said in the beginning, no human being ever gave birth to themselves. No human being ever did that. He simply had to let his parents do that for him. And so, says Jesus, Nicodemus, you must simply let the Holy Spirit perform the new birth for you. Now, how many do you suppose the Holy Spirit wants to do that for? I make the assumption on the basis of the Scriptures that the Holy Spirit wants to rebirth everyone, right? Why isn't everybody reborn then? And we'll get to that in a moment. So you should not be surprised at my saying, it says in verse 7, you must be born again. And then he compares it to the wind. He says, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Holy Spirit. You know, as amazing as this may seem, it's the Holy Spirit that does the work here of, of giving the rebirth. It's, and and we, we can either decide to let him or we can hinder it by faith or unbelief, you see. Yeah. Tell us. I'm here in the meeting and I'm thinking, you know, like something was talking to me and I just got up and I said, I think I need to get baptized. I don't know why, but I think my heart told me mm-hmm. that. And it just came to me. And I was, you know, willing to open my heart and do it. And I was like, that's just what I'm doing. So I, I, well, if, if you don't stop it, yeah. if you don't hinder it, the Holy Spirit will move you. That's right. He will work it in you. And, you know, the wind, uh, you know, the wind is always blowing. And as far as I know, it's always blowing on everyone. (laughs) That's the way the Holy Spirit is. The Holy Spirit is compared to the wind. He's always blowing on everyone. And if you do not hinder the blowing of the Holy Spirit on you, he will give you the rebirth that you need. He will change the heart, you see. Nobody is wise enough to tell where they come from For the grace of God has been working on human hearts in multitudinous ways ever since the world began. You know, the Lord uses so many different ways to plant these seeds um, of truth so that they can later on be watered by the Holy Spirit. Maybe you can think of a parent that was a good seed sower in your life. Maybe you can think of a friend who gave you some good counsel some, maybe someone who prayed with you and read to you from the Bible at a very tender moment in your life. Maybe someone who sang a song that just reached your heart. You know, you, you know they weren't doing it for self-praise, but they were doing it to praise the Lord, and it just touched you. Uh, maybe a Bible message. Yes, the Lord can even gift some evangelist or preacher <laughs> to plant a seed that the Holy Spirit can use to water it and... Uh, bring the rebirth experience. Expressions of true love, all of these can be ways that the Lord uses to plant the good news ideas in the heart. But what is important is to recognize that however means these seeds may have been planted, 
the source of those seeds is God himself. He is the source of it. And those seeds are going to be lying deep in the heart sometimes, unrecognized. And by the way, we're talking about children, and we pray for our children, don't we, as we see them making major life decisions, and oftentimes to our human appearance, it looks like they're going astray. But you know, seeds have been planted there, and they may be lying dormant for a while in our eyes, but they are there nonetheless, and the Holy Spirit will constantly seek to water them and uh, bring them to fruition, germinate them. Uh, If you look in Isaiah 55, verse 10, uh, it again is expressed here, another illustration of how the divine word of truth accomplishes its purpose. Isaiah 55, 10 says, As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth, and making it bud and flourish, so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater. So is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. This is actually God's love in action. The wind is blowing wherever it pleases. That's a picture of God's compassionate concern. And God is compassionately concerned for every human soul, your soul in particular. Not less surely is his love manifested for you than that the wind blows on you as well as on everyone else in particular. It's a wonderful good news truth as it's expressed there in Acts 10 verse 34 that God is no respecter of persons. It's exciting, for at times you can almost feel those seeds of truth germinating within your soul like a pregnant woman can feel the new baby growing within her. And what a joy to experience. Just like you said, I am being born again. You can sense that something is happening. I'm being born again. But if the new birth is so easy, well, why isn't everybody? Why isn't everybody born again? And the answer to that question is a sad one. Many times, uh, many people, perhaps the majority, are practicing a form of uh, spiritual abortion. You could put it in those terms. They are endlessly trying to snuff out the life that the Spirit of God would impart to them. This is uh, disclosed. You look in Acts 7, verse 51. Stephen was speaking to the, some words to the Jewish leaders of his day. Their hearts were very unconverted. They had an unconverted human nature. And here's how he described it. He said, You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are just like your father's. You always resist the Holy Spirit. So we have to see this here as a a very active um, alienation, a very active enmity against God, against the Holy Spirit. It doesn't make sense for us humans to do that, but if we're going to face reality, that's what often happens with folks. 
It's like starving people diligently uprooting every little food-bearing plant of corn or wheat that comes up out of the ground. It just doesn't make sense. It's crazy, but that's what people do. Jesus told a parable to illustrate the fate that most of these wonderful divine seeds of truth meet when they're planted in human beings. And this is just embryonic new life which is snuffed out before it even can get a chance to grow. And the parable is in Matthew 13 and verse 3. Jesus says, uh, this is from the New English Version, New International Version, Matthew 13, 3. A farmer went out to sow his seed, and as he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up, And some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. And then he went on to explain his story. Who is the farmer? What is the, who does the farmer represent in this story? It's Jesus, isn't it? Okay, and he's the farmer, and he's sowing the good news seeds of truth on all human hearts everywhere by his agency of the Holy Spirit, uh, which is represented by the wind. The Holy Spirit is scattering these seeds. And... Uh, But he says, it's sad that, in verse 15, this people's heart has become calloused, and they hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Many hearts are as hard as the packed earth beneath the tread of multitudes in the path. The seeds fall on these hard hearts, but they cannot take root. Go down to verse 19, Matthew 13, verse 19. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, The evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is the seed sown along the path. What was sown on rocky places is the man who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since he has no root, he lasts only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, he quickly falls away. What was sown among thorns is the man who hears the word But the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke it, making it unfruitful. Fortunately, however, some seed, verses 8 and also 23, some seed fell on good soil, it says, where it produced a crop, a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. And this is the man who hears the word and understands it. So that's the one who would believe the good news and who receives it, and who welcomes it, and who cherishes it. Yeah, it's just that easy. It's just that easy. He lets it into his heart instead of inviting the birds by the wayside to scratch it up, or the thorns to choke it out, or the hidden rocks of cherished sin to dwarf its roots, or performs an abortion of unbelief to kill it. No one has yet seen the dynamic factor that produces the new birth. 
I've not seen the Holy Spirit. But he's like the wind. He's there. He's fanning the flame, as it were. But Jesus told Nicodemus, uh, Jesus knew, of course, that the cross was imminent, but Nicodemus knew nothing about that. But Jesus told Nicodemus about the cross in advance. So if you want to go back to John chapter 3 here, let's look at that together. Very important element of this whole story. Jesus told Nicodemus in advance the story of the cross. No new birth can ever take place without appreciating, without seeing the cross. Okay, John chapter 3. And, um, all right, let's see. Verse 13. No one has ascended. Is that how it starts? No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is, the Son of Man who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness... Even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That would be a reference to uh, him being lifted up on the cross. Okay. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So, first of all, Jesus here is alluding to an incident that took place during Israel's wandering in the wilderness back in ancient times. And there were hardships, but uh, they were certainly making their difficulties worse because they were believing bad news. Uh, Numbers tells us that the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way, and the people spake against God and against Moses. Wherefore have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? They were complaining. They were not about to die, however, because God was with them. But this was just some kind of an imagination on their part, a specter of doom that they saw themselves involved with, and it was without foundation, without reason. They were complaining without reason. They were saying, we're going to die out here in the wilderness, and God was with them. It was plain, outright unbelief is what it was. Their sin was unbelief. In other words, they were borrowing troubles that were only figments of their faithless imagination. Well, then the poisonous snake struck, and then the people's unbelief and their murmuring had already deprived them of God's special protection, which would have been theirs by right. And so now they were told to make a snake of brass. Do you remember that? Moses was instructed, you hammer out a snake made out of brass, put it on a high pole. This is going to be a prophecy of Christ who is going to be uplifted on the cross. And you remember what Paul said about Jesus on the cross. God made him to be what? Sin for us who knew no sin. Is sin a beautiful thing? It's the, very, it's the ugliest thing in the all. But Jesus was made to be sin. There he is on the cross. 
That's a very ugly experience Jesus went through bearing sin, wasn't it? See, when Jesus died, he, he gave up the hope of the resurrection. He gave up the hope of life. Some people say, oh, he just went to sleep for three days. He had a nice weekend sleep. They have no comprehension whatsoever of the death of Jesus. If Jesus just went to sleep for a nice little weekend rest, you know, big deal. So what? You know, who, who of us wouldn't want to do something like that? No. Jesus gave up the hope of a resurrection because God made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. So, <clears throat> the snake being lifted up, maybe you can help me, this would be a good discussion point here, but when Moses lifted up the, the serpent, that serpent represented Christ who is lifted up on the cross whom God made to be sin for us. There must have been some connection with the serpent back in the Garden of Eden. Uh, I, don't, I don't know how to quite put that together. Maybe you can help me, but it was the serpent that deceived the woman Eve, and beguiled her to sin. And um, the serpent must have been a representation of sin in a way. And they were supposed to look at that and believe that by so doing they would be healed just as we are to look to Jesus. That ugly scene of his death on the cross saying goodbye to life forever without the hope of coming back again and having a sundered relationship with his father forever. We're to look at that, and there is eternal life there, to see that and to appreciate that. Note um, that, it, well, then it says, uh, the Lord said to Moses, uh, Numbers 21, 8, 9, make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, it says he lived. Numbers 21, 8 and 9. Well, healing was pretty easy then, wasn't it? By looking at what had bitten them. By looking at it. All they had to do was to see something and appreciate something. And Jesus is telling Nicodemus that there is something for us to see on the cross. But it is more than just going down to the bookstore and buying a crucifix and hanging it around your neck or bringing a cross into your home because it means to appreciate the message of the cross. Looking is believing in the sense of a heart appreciation of what happened there on the cross. This appreciation brings healing to the sin-sick soul. And then, of course, healing that we're talking about here is the new birth. The new birth. So, no one is ever born again unless they see the cross of Jesus and they appreciate what that death is and that changes the sin sick heart from being self-centered it brings in the door of the life the agape that made that sacrifice on the cross and that's what he says in the best beloved verse in all the Bible in John 3 16 for God so loved the world 
that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish. Oh, I have to say something here. Which comes first, the believing or the love? You know, the, the counterfeit gospel says that love made a provision on the cross for everyone to be saved, but it doesn't do them any good unless they believe first. Is that true or false? The love of God has to come first. Right? So the cross has done something very positive to benefit everyone who comes into the world. It is the gift that God gives to everyone. And it is that which uh, seeing and appreciate creates faith in the heart so that a person can choose to exercise that faith. For God so loved the world. So that this verse, John 3.16, is the best definition of what faith is. Okay? Faith is a heart appreciation for the death of Christ and his love for us demonstrated at the cross. Okay? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So um, there is some, obviously some power in, in the cross. Go to um, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. First Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18. Verse 17 says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of wisdom. You know, there's a lot of interesting preachers out there in the world to listen to. They have a lot of information. They can keep me captivated with all of the new things I have never heard before and all of the interesting stories. But they never seem to get to the cross. For the message of the cross, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of wisdom, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is what? And isn't that what we need? Something that moves the heart, the power. See, the, the cross here has to be the message of Jesus' death, what that death was. It's not just bearing the emblem of the cross, wearing it as a, as a necklace or having it as an ornament in the home or putting it on the church. If, if that's what it means to, to bear the cross, then that's pretty magical, isn't it? That's a pretty superstitious way of being saved. And after all, is that really power that changes the heart? Does that really get to the heart to move it? No. 
It has to be the message of the cross, the kind of death that Jesus died because, well, his death was so extravagant that it was a gift for every human being who is a sinner that's born into this world, right? And it's a very extravagant gift because it's powerful enough to save every sinner, but not every sinner wants to be saved. And so it is overly extravagant, isn't it? But he would have done it for one. He would have done it for you. He would have expended his life just for one lost person. So it is the power of God, he, he says here. Paul said that he gloried in the cross. Look at uh, Galatians chapter 6 and verse 14. You know something? I don't think that we can talk too much about the cross. Because it's not just a matter of, of salvation gain, gaining in terms of changing our behavior. It's even a deeper problem than that, and that is to get to the root of the heart matter of our enmity with God. And there's something there that's stalling, stalling us out from really loving God. And, and it's for us to see the cross that will get us out of that stalled condition. Uh, well, in Gal well, here's it, Galatians chapter 6 and verse 14. It says, but God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. In another place, he said, I glory in the cross. What does it mean to boast in the cross and to glory in the cross? Well, you have a, a valid point, and that is that that love sign, shines so supremely from the cross that it either melts a hard heart or it just repels and drives people away. And really, the preaching of the cross is the sifting of the people and the shaking. <laughs> because it either casts your glory into the dust of the ground or you say, I'm not going to have it that way. You know, no, nobody's going to put me down like that. And they walk away from it and they leave it. But glorying in the cross, is there some, something that you just think about constantly all of the time? The one that comes closest to that is Candace. I think about her constantly. Well, not quite all of the time. <laughs> But she consumes a lot, most of my time, what I think about. <laughs> but to glory in something is to think about it all of the time, isn't it? And to boast in the cross is to think about it all the time. Yes, but when you boast 
Whenever you've completed a, a job at work and it's finished, you sit down and you look at it, you admire it, and that night you go home and you can't get to sleep because you're thinking about, okay, I made this move and then I made this curve and then this slope to it, and when I got done, that thing was finished. And you're just thinking about that. Boy, this is really going to be a hit, you know? This is going to make it for me. You're glorying in it. You're boasting in it. You see... The cross is something that, for us, should become ever more looming in our consciousness, in our thinking patterns. It should become the center of our being. And that's true. <laughs> then people will say, well, it makes you tick. And you're going to be sharing with them the, the beauty of the message of the cross. This is the power. It, this is why it, there's power in the blood. We sing that song, you see? Well, power in the blood is to see and appreciate what that death on the cross was all about. And that power changes the heart. And it brings a new kind of motivation in there. No longer self-centered. It's God's agape love. And this is why uh, Jesus spoke this way to Nicodemus there in John 3.16. Obviously, the power is somehow in the one who's on that cross. How can believing or appreciating God's act of loving and giving do anything to change our sinful hearts? One of Christ's followers made it clear for us how it worked for him. He expresses it as a principle that operates in every heart that will look and say thank you to God for what he did. Paul is defending himself against the charge that his all-out devotion to Christ was virtual insanity. Paul was going through incredible hardships and persecutions for Christ's sake. He was singing for joy as he went along. The idea that he was sacrificing anything seems not to have crossed his mind. On and on he went. He talks about scourgings and imprisonments, fastings, cold and nakedness, shipwrecks, hunger, weariness. His career as a missionary went on for decades, even into old age. Why not restrain his self-sacrificing devotion and settle down and enjoy a well-earned retirement? Wasn't it time for Paul to begin looking out for number one? But here is what he says. Now I'll give you time to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verses 13 through 15. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verses 13 to 15. And, and verse 14, we all need to commit to memory because it ought to be our favorite text in all of the Bible. Whether we be our, beside ourselves, it's up to God to determine that, or whether we be sober, it's for your cause. For the love of Christ, it says, constraineth us. 
because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. In other words, all would be dead if he had not died for them. All would be dead right now if he had not died for them. And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. You know, uh, Paul would be the first one to say that he wasn't any better than anybody else that's ever lived. Neither was he more heroic than anyone else. He simply saw something here, which he's expressing. He saw something that uh, made all of his sacrifices easy for him. He saw that he would be in a hopeless grave if that one had not died in his place. Even his next breath he owed to Christ's sacrifice on the cross. He acknowledged himself as a slave to God's love, bought by the blood shed there. Nothing that he possessed was really his. There's a hymn in our book. It's called, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, on which the Prince of Glory died. You know these words. My richest gain I count but loss, and poor contempt on all my pride. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a tribute far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. Isaac Watts. As easily as the believing Israelites were healed of their fatal snake bites, so easily does the new birth occur in the heart of one who sees that cross like Paul saw it. Now you know that Paul was not there on the occasion when Jesus was crucified, right? He was not physically present when Christ was crucified. The original 12 disciples were there, weren't they? Did they see something? They fled. So evidently they missed the story. They missed what it was about. They got out of there for fear. But Paul, who was never there, saw something. So how must he have seen it? By faith. So you don't have to be physically present in front of a movie of the crucifixion to get it. It may be had by faith and appreciated by faith, you see. And so what Paul saw by faith seems to have been made a more profound impression on him than the actual event impressed the apostles themselves who did witness it. That means that the same faith-inspired devotion can be ours. Paul is better news than the other apostles. Suppose someone looks but not, does not appreciate the sacrifice of Christ. If someone looks and doesn't appreciate the sacrifice of Christ, what would you call that? The sin, above all sins, is unbelief. The sin of all sins is unbelief. Jesus went on to tell Nicodemus, in effect, that no one will ever be lost because of his past sins. 
but only because of that cherished sin of unbelief, of hardness of heart toward the cross. And look in John 3 there. You have your Bible still open, verse 17. John 3, verse 17. It expresses this just like Jesus said it, New International Version. God did not send his Son into the world, it says, to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world. But men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Now, you see what happens here, the whole... The big sin here is talking about is, is belief or unbelief, isn't he? And what issues from unbelief are these deeds of evil, aren't they? They just express what's already in the heart that, of unbelief. Um, so everyone's destiny hangs on his or her heart response to that cross. The new birth occurs not by our doing this or that impossible assignment, but by simply looking with the eye of heartfelt faith at what that cross means. Have you ever wondered, what does it mean to be born again? Do you think you have some clue now what it means to be born again? It means let the Holy Spirit show you something in the cross that you haven't seen before, and don't hinder the Holy Spirit, but receive it and welcome it and cherish it and just like you gave as a testimony, it will happen. The Holy Spirit will work, and he will change. And by the way, the big theological term for that is you have experienced justification by faith. That's what that means, to be born again. Okay? So now you, you begin to you, you experience, God forgave my sins on the cross, and I didn't even know that. But now the Holy Spirit has imparted that wonderful peace to me. I've been put right with God. And in a sense, the new birth is not only a legal verdict as far as God is concerned, but it's an experience of peace with him. And more than that, it's a reconciliation of your alienated heart to God. And that's what we really need, isn't it? a reconciliation of our heart with him. So let it come into your heart. Let it take root. Don't abort it. Cherish it. There can be no such thing as bad news unless we ask for it or choose it and thus bring on ourselves willfully a final verdict of hanging on to darkness after we have been given the chance to see the light. There's one final verse there in John 3, verse 36, where he says this, he who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life. So this is the sin, isn't it? Unbelief. Now that last little part bothers us, but the wrath of God abides on him. And I want to suggest to you that the wrath of God is his love. Because for one who does not believe and who hates God, to them God is wrath. All of that love is really, to them, his wrath. 